Last week we spoke about the little Aleph, the little Aleph that could. Going back to the to the Megillat Esther in chapter nine, verse twenty-nine. Right at the end, it says, "Vatichtov Esther Hamalka." Do you see that? It's very interesting. This is from a 14th century Megillah from Germany. Vatichtov. In the middle of Vatichtov, there's a big, big tuff. I'd like to look at that. And it says, Vatichtov Esther. And Esther wrote, Bat Avichael, giving her lineage that she's Jewish. Umordechai Yehudi and Mordechai the Jew. It called Tokef. All this Tokef. The Mepharshim are very bothered by that word tokef, all the strength, all the authority. It's a very ambiguous word, but all that had happened. Lekaim eight Igeret Hapurim, to fulfill the aforementioned Igeret. So she's now writing everything that happened in a letter, Hashenis, a second time. A second time. Okay, so what's the second time? If we compare the first time that this was done, and this is critical to our thesis, the first time this was done, it was a few psukim earlier. Vayichtov Mordechai. A few psukim earlier. Vayichtov Mordechai is Hedvorim O'Ele. Vayishlach Seforim. Remember, Vatichtov Esther, it's Egeret. What's the difference between a Sefer and an Egeret? We'll come back to that. Lekayim Aleim. Yom Arba Asala Chodesh to make the 14th and the 15th. Kayomim Vekibel HaYehudim Et HaSheh And the Jews accepted it. The rabbis didn't, but the Jews did. <laughs> we'll come back to that. But can you see the switcheroo that's occurred on the first year, the first year after the miracle? Now we Esther wants to do something in the second year, and then she uses Mordechai as her authority to do it. There's no mention of Esther here. Vayichtov Mordechai, and Mordechai set into motion that one-time event of Purim the first year. But the second year came around, and Esther came along using Mordechai's name to be Mekayim the letter to keep it alive, right? And look at the last verse: Umama Esther kiem divrei hapurim ha'ele. The Nichtav Basefer. That letter now becomes canonized in the 24 Seferorin. The last Sefer of Tanakh is Esther, according to Chazal. So it's now, it got in under the wire. <laughs> Her Igeret, which only happened after the second year. Now, the question comes back then, what is this enigmatic Tof, Vatichtov Esther Hamalka. So Chazal then say, well, Tof is the last letter of the alphabet, and now we're going to allow Esther's book to get into the Sepharim of Tanakh, the 24 books of Tanakh, and so that's why it's got a big Tof. Okay. Now the Malbim picks up on all of this, and the Malbim says the following. Malbin's style is always to ask a question and then to answer it. Lama katva Esther Shainis. Why did we need Esther to come along on the second year? Umahu kala tokev. What's all this tokev business? Umaha yaha igeret ha 
Mar Hosif Bishenis Shel Rishona. The, the Malbim asks the very, very good question. What do we need it for? I mean, Mordechai was on the base, then he could have done it. The, the Malbim says, Esther Ratzel Shel Megillah Hazos Tisha'er Beinak Tuvim. She wanted the book put into the hagiographer. She wanted the book to be placed into the Tanakh. And so she comes to Basin and they go, not so fast, my dear. Why? You can't just add when the canon has been closed, as Sid Lehman has told us in his life's work on, on canonization of the Bible in Chazal, you can't just add to Kisvei HaKodesh. And he then quotes the Megillah. The, the, the Gemara in Megillah. Sholcha Esther Lechachamim. Let's look at that. And now Esther asks the sages. Kivuni Ladorot. Number one. I want you to establish my Purim. The Purim every year to be a festival. So they sent her the following reply. Typical. Kina etma oreret alenu labena umot. If we're going to start celebrating Purim every year and starting clapping homon, what are you going to do? You're going to incite the wrath of the nations against us, that we will rejoice at the remembrance of their downfall. Shalcholahem. So she sent back a message. That's already taken place because in in the chronicles of the non-Jewish world of Achashverosh and the kings of Persia and Modai, the whole story is already there. It's in their history books. So why can't it be celebrated by us? Then the Gemara cites a different machlokus between Esther and the Chachamim. And she goes as follows. Sholcholahem Esther Lechachamim. Kitvuni Ledorot. Write me. Write the story of the miracle of Purim. Into the Tanakh. Sholchula. So they gave, they gave her a kvetch. Halo katavti lechoshloshim, katava revim. You can only have three mentions of Amalek, not four. And then so she comes back and says, well, this could, we mentioned Amalek uh, in, 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 uh, in, in, the, in the Megillah, so it's okay, it could be included. But you can see that it wasn't so pashut that the book of Esther should be included in the canon. And it was only... The Malbim tells us, because Kimu Vakiblu, that the people accepted her the second year, that it was finally Hashenis. And if we look at Rashi, that word Shainis is critical. The word Hashenis. And Rashi says, Lashana Hashniya Chazru Vashalchu Sfarim Sheyasu Purim. So Rashi is always looking at that idea. Okay. Now, the Rambam tells us in Hilchus Megillah that the halachas of the Megillah are different to the halachas of a Sefer Torah. We actually make a bracha when we read the Megillah. But the Rambam says, quoting the Gemara, that there is a difference because the Megillah is a letter. It's not a Sefer. It's a letter. So it has to be sewn together as a single scroll. A Megillah can only use animal sinews to sew the parchment together, like the Sefer Torah. But, unlike a Sefer Torah, it's not necessary to sew the entire length of the crease of the parchment. You can just have three stitches at each end of the parchment, three stitches in the middle. 
And why? Now listen to what he says. The leniency is permitted because the Megillah is referred to as a letter, a correspondence letter, as it says in our Pasuk. The Rambam uses our Pasuk, Igeret. She sent an Igeret precisely because it was not meant to be a scroll. So it has different halachot that Rambam talks about. And my father, I remember in England, he would read standing up. Because the Magad Avram and the Mishnah Brewer says you have to read it, but you have to be excited about it. What happens at the end as if it's the first time you're ever reading it? He would stand it up and the scroll he would unfold before the reading of the Megillah so that he wouldn't have to go unfolding it during the Megillah. So that it's all ready to unfold. That's what, that's what my father used to do. Now, the Rambam also says something very interesting. He says... The following about the messianic era. All the books of the prophet, Kol Sifriya in the future days of the Messiah, will be annulled. Chutz Megillas Esther. An outrageous thing to say. Megillas uh, Esther that just snuck in under the wire because Esther was forceful. We didn't hear Mordechai asking for it. It was Esther that asked for it. Mordechai actually gets into some criticism from Chazal, that he should have been learning more, that he got involved in politics, <laughs> that he was punished for that because he should have been steiging. But it is Esther that sets the last book of, of the Tanakh, historically. It's the Megillus Esther that he said will not be annulled. Why? Like the Torah itself, it will continue. Unlike the Nevi'im and Ketuvim. And he says, because the days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews or the memorial perish from their sea. Because it actually states that we should never forget it. Now, there is a Kabbalistic reason that we're told. And the rabbi told us yesterday, he was in Yerushalayim and he heard it and he can't remember who he heard it in the name of, but it bears repeating. He says as follows, if every one of the 24 books of Tanakh are sacred, the Zohar says that a color, Pasuk in Yeshayahu and brought in Tikkunim, that a, a color, someone who's getting married, they are adorned with 24 items. And Isaiah lists the 24 items, the nose ring, the head ring, the diadem, the necklace, the bangs, the rings, the rings on the fingers, the rings on the toes, the ankle ringlets. He goes through them. And the last one he says is a mirror. And so the Zohar questions, why do I need a mirror? And the Zohar says every one of the 24 books of Tanakh represent another adornment, another tachshit, another piece of jewelry for the color. Now, he says, do you know any bridegroom? And ask your wife the same question. You're going to a party and she puts on a jewelry. Do you know anyone who wouldn't leave the house with first looking in the mirror, touching up the makeup, putting on the bangles the right way, making sure the earrings are... No one would leave the house. So the Zoya says that is the mirror. The mirror is the last of the adornments. Esther is the last of the books of Tanakh. Now, a mirror has no value of its own. It has no value of its own. It just reveals what's shown to it. It has no light of its own. It's Malchus. It's the Shekhinah. 
And Esther is the Malchus, Vatilbash Esther Malchus. She is representing in the upper worlds the Shechina. So if the 24 Sfarim of Tanakh represents the Shechina, each of the books represents an adornment of the Shechina, representing her beauty. The last of them, which can never be Batel, is the mirror representing the book of Esther. I thought that was an absolutely stunning, stunning understanding. But I want to read to you from Rav Hutna because Rav Hutna delves into this idea of the Rambam that Esther itself will never be nullified. And it says as follows. He's going to give you a parable. Two people are charged with the task of recognizing a face in the dark. One lights a candle and examines the face to identify it. The other, without a candle, trains himself to identify people by the sound of their voices alone. The first person achieves a clearer recognition by sight than the other can by sound. However, the second person has taught himself a new talent of listening to the voice of the other. I thought that was a very profound understanding, <laughs> that you have to listen, not just see. And when dawn breaks, the first person will extinguish his candle, but will be none the wiser as a result of his nocturnal experience, while the other will emerge from it with a newly developed capacity for listening as a channel of recognition. So, similarly, Rav Hutner writes, Purim and Pesach, always just a month apart. They represent alternative modes by which Am Yisrael recognizes God who stages himself in two modes of Anochi. Anochi, I shall haste aste ponai bayomahu. On that day, I will surely hide my face, on the one hand. And Anochi Hashem elokecha shel tzesi Onochi is the one that's in daylight. Pesach, taking you out. Yod chazaka, looking like a... a, a a mighty warrior over the Reed Sea. The God of Book of Exodus, the God of the Book of Exodus is recognized by the candlelight of miracles and prophecies. Whilst the God of hiddenness, and remember the rabbis in Megillah 19 say, Esther minat Torah minayim. How do I know that Esther is in the Torah? Is there any hint of Esther in the Torah? And it says that ponai. Bayomahu, I will surely hide my face. Esther is the hiding of God's face. He's not mentioned in the book of Esther. It's recognized, therefore, by a new sensibility attuned to the voice of the hidden God. And I think that that's exactly where we are today. We are facing the hidden voice of the eye of God. In the messianic era, when God will be revealed by light seven times the brilliance of the sun, the candles that were so necessary in Galut, in the dark, will all be extinguished. Batel. All the festivals that are linked with Exodus will be Batel, going to the Rambam, subsumed into the light of the ultimate redemption. But the Purim story, the Purim redemption story, in which Israel has taught itself to recognize the Anochi of God even in the darkness, will remain as an eternal spiritual gift, even after sunrise. Now, this brings me to a very interesting difference between two people I really respect and know personally. Uh, one is Rabdovid Weiss Halivni, 
Rav David Weiss Halivni, in an essay accompanying the prayer book Machse Wolfsburg, which was discovered by Yad Vashem, he writes the foreword to this Machse that was published by Yad Vashem, and it was in Wolfsburg labor camp in Rosh Hashanah, 1944. The service was led by the Sat Mechazen Naftali Stern, and he transcribed the prayers from memory onto paper torn from cement bags that he had purchased in exchange for bread. This was the only time that the inmates were ever permitted to pray in public. Halivni was then 16. He was already called the Iloy of Sigurd. He knew Shaspalper, using the pin, everything. He was a Iloy. Heard one prayer as unique to the incomparable conditions of time and place. Now he writes in his foreword to the publication of the Volksberg Machs of the following. There is no time without someone who prays. And when it came to the prayer, Elokeinu velokei avaseinu, meloch al kola oretz kvodo, God and God of the Fathers, may you reign over the world in your glory, which represents the Amida, Rosh Hashanah. We ask God to take the reins in his hands and not allow these satanic voices to, voices to prevail. That is what that prayer means. You have to understand, people in this labor camp, being there four years, Muslim men, finally be allowed to daven, saying these words that are so incongruous. God, may you take reign over the world. And after a scholarly and passionate discussion of the theology of evil, Halivni concludes that through this prayer, reign over all the world, the prisoners perceive, perceive the incomprehensible evil that has happened as the consequence of the Holy Ones abdicating his rule, transferring the reins of government into the cruel hands of the Nazis. So the question is, what does that mean? For Halivni, God relinquished. And he says this mind-blowing story that breaks your heart. I'll, I'll repeat it to you. On the point of being beaten by an enraged SS trooper one day, the terrified young prisoner, Halivni, pleaded in German, Herr Übersturmführer, merciful one. By saying those words, O merciful one, to this Nazi butcher, he escaped by the skin of his teeth. And the one regret he has in his biography, autobiography, is he grieves daily for having used this holy word, merciful one, Ovino Horachamon, that was used in that machza to approach God, applies only to God to pray for mercy from the Nazi. And he writes, I simply knew no other words of entreaty. I drew them from the prayer book and translated them directly into German. Herr Übersturmführer, merciful one. Perhaps subconsciously, I thought of the SS as it were, as a god. They ruled over the camp with absolute authority. Life and death literally remained in their hands, and I conscious, unconsciously used it as an expression appropriate to God. And he's tearing himself up with guilt 60, 70 years later as he writes this introduction to the Wolfsburg Machse. Very poignant. Now, he takes this, and Aviva Zornberg, who I also know and respect, writes, In Halivni's account, Rosh Hashanah in Wolfsburg becomes a cry of protest at God's withdrawal from the world. Withdrawal. The tragedy of the individual and the nation is set in the context of a cosmic drama. 
because withdrawal raises this Kabbalistic notion that he talks about, although he's a big Litvak, <laughs> but he, he remained a Satmar Chassid at heart, and he talks about Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is this catastrophe that happened in the act of creation. God had to withdraw, says the Arizal, when the infinity decided to create finitude, obviously it had to withdraw, withdraw to create a vacated space so that finite world could and cosmos could be in that space. That's the withdrawal that he's using as a metaphor to explain the absence of God in Auschwitz. So Aviva says the theology of Simpson expresses the idea that there were or are at times when God withdraws his power from the world, allowing human beings complete autonomy, like we're seeing in Europe now, in order that the conflicting values of divine presence and human free will maintain equilibrium. And therefore, a certain vacuum is continually regenerating, creating the space for free will. And then she critiques it and says, Halivni prefers the concept of God's withdrawal to the more usual concept that she ascribes to of v'onochi hastir astir esponai. I will surely hide my face. Now, hiding of the face is going like this. I'm hiding my face. I'm still present, but I'm just, it's brought into Vorim. In those days when I will punish you, I will hide my face, meaning I will hide the mercy. I won't allow my mercy to come out. I will allow the punishment to come out. And that's the purpose of his essay that rejected that. And then she goes on to say, well, there are times that, 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 that the um, hiding of the face actually does, in fact, imply a withdrawal. Okay. For me, uh, my entire life is, is, uh, revolves around this issue. And none more than in these times when people are being slaughtered, of course. So let's look at a Yehuda Amichai poems. You know, there were a bunch of people in the modern era, starting with Montefiore, uh, who were very upset, just like the rabbi said in the Gemara, about the effect of keeping Purim alive and celebrating it and what it will do for us in Galut. Claude Montefiore, who lived from 1858 to 1938, was a leading figure in my country, a great-grand-nephew of the renowned Moshe Montefiore, and he expressed strong reservations about the violent, vindictive, and indecorous nature of Esther and Purim. And in his book Liberal Judaism, he said that the only non-Pentateuchal holiday that was likely to maintain itself was Hanukkah. Similarly, in 1938, Shalom Ben-Chorin, a 25-year-old German-Jewish immigrant to Palestine, published a polemical pamphlet in which he called for the elimination of the Book of Esther and Purim, since both are unworthy of a people which is so disposed to bringing about its national regeneration under Zionism. Most important is the great Yiddish and Hebrew writer Y.L. Peretz, based in Warsaw, and he dubbed Purim as a fever at best, an occasion to dance on the grave of a former national glory. Now, all these are assimilationist in nature, these polemics. But comes along my favorite poet, Yehuda Amichai, and he objects to the Book of Esther, as I'm, as you can see in this poem, and it finds its expression in this well-known poem, which describes having compiled a new censored Bible, <laughs> comprised only of the parts that he likes or can tolerate, 
and beginning with a more refined version of the Book of Esther. I, I just, it's just stunning. I filtered out the Book of Esther, the residue of vulgar joy, and out of the Book of Jeremiah, the howl of pain in the guts, and out of the Song of Songs, the endless search for love, and out of the book of Genesis, the dreams and Cain, and out of Ecclesiastes, the despair, and out of the book of Job, Job, and from what was left over, I pasted for myself a new Bible. And now he tells us what it's like to live with this new Bible. Now I live censored and pasted, which is what I do all my life, <laughs> cut and paste, censored and pasted and limited and in peace. A woman asked me last night in the darkened street about the well-being of another woman who had died before her time and not in anyone's time. Out of great tiredness, I answered, she's fine, she's fine. <laughs> now, unlike Montefiore, Ben-Horin and Peretz's unequivocal repudiation of Purim and Esther, Yehuda Amichai's poem admits the cost of cutting, pasting, and censoring the Bible and Jewish practice, so as to do away with anything that might trouble us or grate against our modern sensibilities. Such a Bible is boulderized, limited, and incomplete, like the false answer that the tired speaker gives in response to the question about a mutual friend who's passed away too young. She's fine, she's fine. This censored Bible constitutes a lie of forgetting. In fact, life can be this guarded, peaceful, and fine, reiterated twice in the final line of the poem, only when one is dead. The poem suggests that this sort of Bible, and by extension, this sort of Jewish life, I would add, would not be much of a Bible or a Jewish life. Implied by this profound poet's poem, is the need for a Bible as well as a way of living, and I would say a Hasidus as well, that is engaged and honest about the unpleasant, discomforting truth of the world and our many sacred texts that are, in fact, quite atrocious and quite horrific. We return then, what is it about Purim that merits the repeated reassertion and preservation and that comes back to Esther and her power to take the law into her own hands and go to Basin and insist upon it. And when refused, let the people, Kimu Vakiblu, decide that this will be. And then Kitvu Ledorot, that it becomes the 24th book, that mirroring of the rest of the Bible. And I would say in the spirit of Yehuda Amichai and the spirit of Professor David Weiss Halivni, that this includes the withdrawal of the divine. That is the tof. That is the big tof in Vatichtov. It is the final Sefer of Tanakh, the book of Esther, with a large tof. There's no more prophecy after Esther. We didn't make a book for Hanukkah, even though it came after. Esther is the final prophecy, and Esther will remain in the times of Mashiach, when all the other books are. And Purim will remain in the time of Mashiach, when all the other festivals will be nitbatel. And that is because the mirror is the Shekhinah. The mirror is Esther, Vatilbash Esther Malchus. And we are the Shekhinah, and we mirror the divine. 
And what we need to do in our sacred texts, include texts of horror. Include it because those represent our lives, the way of living that is engaged and honest, despite being unpleasant and discomforting. And we're living in that time now. So what we need to do is to mirror that in our sacred texts, in our biological and spiritual living, so that we get through this time together. This is the big tough of Esther, Vatichto of Esther. That is the writing of our biography as we endure it today. Have a wonderful week.